Listening Dog Media. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I should say that um, as much as I'm a fan, I am still quite upset that when I was 10 years old, I waited by my radio on the morning of my birthday for you to read out my birthday request and you never did. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but a happy birthday, Chris, for <laughs> your 10th birthday. I hope you have a lovely time. <laughs> All right, let's do this. All right. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. It's really important for music fans to be behind the mic. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. The more me I am, the better I am, the better connection I have. I listen to a lot of radio and I'm constantly amazed by how articulate people are. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. The secret is to really love what you're doing. For me, a studio is terrific. As soon as I was able to get back into the studio, I came to life again. And with me now is the DJ who was the first ever voice on Radio 1. I just thought to myself, I just want to get the first words correct. He invented the golden hour. And I just write down things I think might be quite funny. Not that they ever are, but in my mind, <laughs> I love them. And was the first ever winner of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Nowadays, we do get, you know, people who come in from the television side, which is fine, but they don't necessarily learn how to operate the machinery in the studio. And you can really make yourself sound very much better than you really are if you're slick. I don't think people realize how much I did actually love music, because if the music isn't right, then the program is no good, because I can't believe in it. Hello, Tony Blackburn. Hello, Chris. Nice to be with you, and thanks for inviting me. Tony, I assume you never tire of being known as the first voice on Radio 1? No, not really. I mean, it was quite an honour to be asked to do that. I also like to be known for the, one of the first voices on Pirate Radio, you know, Radio Caroline, because that's what kicked the whole thing off, really. Two years on Radio Caroline and a year on the station I loved, and I think it's still been the, the best station in the country ever, Big L Radio London, where all modern-day radio came from. You know, those wonderful jingles, the American Pam's jingles, that I still use on Sounds of the 60s. I'm very proud of that, but also, of course, very proud to have opened up uh, Radio 1. How did you get the gig on Pirate Radio in the first place? I read an advertisement in New Musical Express, believe it or not. Uh, I hadn't heard Radio Caroline because I was brought up in uh, Poole in Bournemouth, around that area, and the signal, we couldn't hear it. But I saw a documentary on ITV about Radio Caroline, but it had just started, and I thought, that's fantastic. And then, as luck would have it, I used to get the NME every week, and there was an advert there wanting DJs for Radio Caroline. So I put together a tape myself 
introducing four Beatles records, sent it off to Caroline House, Six Chesterfield Gardens, and uh, got a reply back within a week saying, could I go up there and have an audition, which I did. And how was the audition? What do you remember about it? Well, I went into an office for the first programme control. His name escapes me now. But he was standing on his head, uh, throwing darts at a dartboard. And I thought, this is a mad organisation. This is something I'd quite like to be a part of. And he interviewed me and then uh, just said, go downstairs and do a tape for us. So I went downstairs and uh, did this uh, tape in, in a little studio they had there. And he said, if you could come back uh, in a couple of hours, I'd like to play it to one or two people. So I wandered around Hyde Park. So I went back two hours later and he said, when can you start? And this was on the Friday. And he said, could you start on the Wednesday? And I said, well, could I make it a couple of days later? Because I was uh, a dance hall singer and guitarist at the Bournemouth Pavilion. And I wanted to um, tell them that I couldn't be a part of it anymore. So I did. And I was uh, on the boat the following week. How did that equip you, what you were doing before as a performer? How did it equip you to become a DJ? I don't know. I mean, I wanted to be a singer. I always wanted to be a singer. And a part of me still does. I mean, I made 28 records and uh, two albums eventually. And I mean, none of them sold very well. But performing in front of a live audience certainly helped me doing the gigs that I've done up and down the country in discos and things like that. And now the Sound of the 60s theatre show we're doing. I love being on stage. And so a lot of DJs don't. They, They like being in front of a microphone and that's it. I like both. I love the uh, microphone in in a studio. I love that. I love studio. But uh, at the same time, you know, when I was doing the Radio 1 roadshows and things like that, all the training I'd had at the Bournemouth Pavilion, it seemed quite natural. And I found it pretty easy. And I always have done. Before any of that, Tony, what was your childhood like? Were you always in the school play? Were you always front and centre? No, I wasn't at all. I always had this deep love of radio. I always loved it. And I used to listen into the old light programme in those days and think how much better it could be because there was no popular music or anything like that. The BBC didn't provide that for teenagers. They were totally geared on an older audience, so unlike the way it is today, which is quite reversed. But I loved uh, going to see shows. You know, I went to see Cliff Richard, Bobby V, all those people at the local uh, Winter Gardens it was then. It's now a car park. But I used to want to be on stage. I remember seeing Billy Fury. He was wonderful on the stage. And I think, oh, my God, I'd love to be doing that. And I got quite depressed about it. I thought I'm never going to get the chance to do it. But then I heard people like Pete Murray and Alan Freeman when I was at school, and I thought, I really love to do this. And at home, I rigged up a system whereby I'd play records, and I had it on a loudspeaker, and I used to play records to my own family, my mum and dad, and pretend to be a disc jockey. So that's the way it started, really. Were your mum and dad in the business in any way? No, my mum was a nurse, or actually, she was a at home looking after us. My dad was a doctor, a GP in Poole. And uh, so I have no show business people in my family at all. But they always knew that I wanted right from the early age to go into some sort of show business. And uh, when it didn't happen, I took singing lessons in the, I used to go up every week and uh, sent in audition tapes to record companies and was constantly turned down. And I wrote songs at home on my guitar and sent them in and they were refused. So it didn't have a lot of success till Radio Caroline came along. Were your parents supportive, though, of what you were trying to achieve? Yeah, they were. I mean, they didn't push me into it. But my mum said, you know, if you want to do it, go up to London and try and try and send tapes off. So she was very encouraging like that. And when I got the job on Radio Caroline, they were absolutely thrilled about it. 
and they couldn't hear Radio Caroline very well, but my dad put a, it must have been about a 100-foot mast up so he could hear the, the shows. <laughs> and he was very proud of it. And uh, so they never tried to hold me back. They wanted me to do what I wanted to do. Before Caroline, though, Tony, how did you take the knockbacks? Well, you know, I wasn't in the show business world, so it was just one of those things It was just difficult to get into. I was studying at college. I've got a diploma in business studies, uh, so I had something to fall back on. But I wouldn't have been happy doing that, and I've never had to do anything else apart from the show business side. So at the age of 21, I'd left college, and I, I just got into it. And it was just lucky. And, uh, you know, I owe everything I have to Radio Caroline. I mean, that was the thing that started me, because you couldn't get in, you know, as being a 21-year-old or a 20-year-old as I was then, you could not possibly get in to the BBC in those days. They would have laughed at you. But Caroline came along and changed everything. So that's what I really owe it all down to. And the experience you've got as well out there was wonderful. And I'd love you to describe what it was like out there, as you say. You were getting paid, obviously. Was it a, a lot of money? No, 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 no. We got paid £25 a week. I mean, in those days, that was a fair amount. But I had a bedsit in Earl's Court, a horrible little bedsit in Earl's Court. That was five pounds a week. So the rest of the money, I saved it. And um, that's all I got. But we got all our food and everything on board. We got two bottles of beer a day, I think it was. And I didn't smoke. I never had a smoke. But you could get 200 cigarettes a week. And that was it. And we lived two weeks on the ship and a week off. I just absolutely adored it. And there's a part of me that would love to, if I could go back in time, like Doctor Who, I'd love to go back to that period for a year and do it all over again. What was camaraderie like? It was very good. I mean, there were always five or six DJs on board at the same time. The living quarters on Radio Caroline were quite cramped. It was a very small ship. Radio London was much bigger, and that was much, much better. Everything about Radio London. Everybody remembers Radio Caroline, but Radio London was the one that was really professional, and it brought about commercial radio. Caroline was more of a pirate setup, you know, Ronan O'Reilly trying to get his own back on the government. You know, it was that sort of thing. But Radio London was professionally set up by the Americans, and it was the very first top 40 radio station in the country. And everything now, including what I do now, is all modeled on that. I learned so much from Radio London. That was the station that really, for me, was the one that I learned everything on. Who were the other DJs that you were there with? Well, Radio London, I was there with Kenny Everett and uh, Dave Cash. Uh, Tony Windsor, who some people will remember at a certain age, he was absolutely terrific. And so I learned a lot from the other DJs that were out there, particularly Kenny Everett, Kenny and Cash, the programs they did. And uh, I could never have been as good as Kenny. It was a completely different style. He was one of the best DJs I've ever heard and still, still is. There's nobody to touch him. He was so creative. And I got to know him very, very well later on in life. Actually, we fell out for about 20 years because we read in, uh, once again, I think it was the Melody Maker on New Musical Express that we didn't like one another. And Kenny really took that to heart. And he thought I didn't like him, but I did. And we had the same agent, Joe Gannett, and she had a 60th birthday party. And my wife, Debbie, Kenny liked Debbie very much. We were at this party and he had a, a big glass of red wine and he had a white suit on and I was sitting next to him and he knocked this red wine over himself. And he turned to me and he said, you did that on purpose, didn't you? And I said, it, that was not me, Kenny. I said, you did that yourself. And my wife who was sitting opposite said, Kenny, you really did do that yourself. It wasn't Tony. And he turned to me and he said, you've never liked me, have you? And I said, of course I have. And he gave me a great big kiss on the cheek. And from that moment, we were the greatest friends. Wonderful. 
and he lived just up the road from me. It's weird. You said, Tony, that you don't think you could ever have been as good as Kenny. Well, what do you think the measure is of what makes a good or great DJ? Well, I couldn't have been as creative as Kenny. Uh, he had this ability to create things, you know, Captain Kremen and, and things like that. My style was totally, obviously, different. So, uh, you know, the two styles were fine. I mean, Kenny wouldn't be me, I wouldn't be Kenny, and that's the way it should be. In my particular case, I think you've got to be true to yourself. I think if you go on the air and you are trying to be a character you're not, the public will see through you. So, regrettably, what people hear on the radio is me. I mean, I don't go around telling jokes the whole time at home. That would get terribly irritating <laughs> for my wife. Um, but <laughs> I do quite like those, that sort of humor. I mean, Pete Murray, who I absolutely adore, and he's still living to this day. I think he's about 120. But he had the same type of style as that. But I think telling all those jokes in the early days, it did create a character, a bit of a cheesy character, which I, I am a little bit. But at the same time, I don't think people realized how much I did actually love music. And that was a bit of a drawback at the time. I think they thought it was just uh, Tony Batman talking a load of nonsense and not really being interested so much in the music, which couldn't have been further from the truth. I've always loved music. And um, I've been very lucky that most of my career, I've selected the music I play, which is very unusual for DJs to be able to do. But I seem to have got myself into that situation. I think you become a life-size character in what you actually are in life. I think that's the truth of it. What about warmth? I suppose that's kind of what you've talked around there, but I always think that that's an essential ingredient. You're absolutely right. I always think you're in a studio, and some people make the mistake of talking as if they're talking to a big crowd. Well, on the radio, you're not. You're talking, uh, hopefully, to a lot of people, obviously, but I always address it to one person. In my mind, when I'm doing Sound of the Sixes or any program I do, I have a family. It's a family there, so I'm addressing it to the family. That's what I love about radio. It's a one-to-one -one medium, unlike television, which is much different. The secret is to really love what you're doing. For me, a studio is terrific. I mean, during the pandemic, I did a lot of shows from home. And although it was great to be able to do it, it's not the same. And as soon as I was able to get back into the studio, I came to life again. And although people said that the program sounded all right, I knew there was something missing, that spark there. And as much as you try to do these programs recorded and at home, they're not the same as being live in a studio and the reaction from the audience, which is terrific. That's what I love about doing stage work as well. It sounds to me like it's pretty obvious that you still get the same buzz now that you ever did doing the radio. Oh, yes. I love it. I mean, I'm 78 now. I wouldn't, would not be doing this now unless I really adored it. And I do. With the Sound of the 60s theatre show, we're traveling all over the country. I just get such a buzz going on that stage and entertaining an audience. And I know we've got a good show and they love it. And um, I know that when I go on that stage, they're going to have a wonderful evening. And to me, that's what it's all about, particularly at the moment with what everybody has been through. You know, it's been dreadful and we're still going through it. I think all of us at Radio 2 and all the other stations, for that matter, the station you work for, Chris, and things, it's been very important. We're there. And I think we've been more important during the pandemic than ever before. I think people tune on and they see you're still there. Life is still going on and that has been important and it's been terrific to be able to do that. And the BBC has allowed us to do that via doing shows from home. Although we haven't, I haven't wanted to do shows from home, it's better than doing nothing. But now I'm back in the studio and it's great. Yeah, it's curious, Tony, isn't it? Because what we do is essentially, it's background noise. But mm. uh, as you say, during the pandemic in particular, 
radio has become a, a lifeline. Yes, and I think social media has been important as well. I mean, I know there's a lot of criticism about social media, but I, I use Twitter and Facebook and Instagram to keep in touch with the audience. And uh, I read all the tweets that come back to me and try and answer as many as I can. And I think that is a terrific way of keeping in touch with your audience. And so the two go very hand in hand. Uh, so I think the way we listen to radio now, the way we get everything is so different. I mean, there's so many radio stations, so many television stations, probably too many. And kids now don't listen to radio the way they used to, if at all. You know, it's all Spotify and YouTube and things like that. And there is a, a tendency in radio for radio stations to desperately try to get a younger audience. And I've said time and time again, that younger audience at the moment is not actually there. Hopefully, they will come to radio eventually, but it's very important we keep entertaining that older audience who have been really good to us over the years. And uh, when I'm doing my programs, I'm basing my shows certainly to the 40 and overs. But my daughter's 24, and, and she really is on Spotify and things like that. And I think occasionally she might tune into my programs to see if I'm still there. <laughs> That's basically it. Does she like listening to you? I don't know. I, I think she does. I, I don't know. It's like, like children take you for granted, don't they? I've got a lovely relationship with my kids. And uh, in the room that I'm talking to you now, I've got a lovely picture of Big L Radio London. It's a sketch that somebody did, and it takes pride of praise. I, I used to have one of Radio Caroline, but somebody stole it. But I've got that. And I remember my daughter, when she was about six or seven years old, she came up into the room and saw this ship with a massive mast. And um, she said, what's that, Dad? I said, well, I, I used to live out there on the North Sea. She said, oh, yeah, and then just went out. And that's it. So they, <laughs> your kids, and quite rightly, they take you for granted. But I think she tunes in now and then, yeah. My daughter uh, says, I've got the easiest job in the world. <laughs> she says, you have to think about it, choose some songs, and then talk in between them. And you know what? She's kind of right. <laughs> she is right. She's very, very right. But some people can do it. Some people can't. There is a knack to it. But I don't know about you, Chris, but when I went into the studio for the first time, it was July the 25th, 1964. At four o'clock in the afternoon, I did a program, the first program I ever did on Radio Caroline called The Big Lineup. And I went in there and I didn't have any nerves. It was the most natural thing in the world to me to be sitting in front of that microphone and broadcasting. And I've never had nerves broadcasting. Now, to some people, a lot of people have said to me, but you're talking to a microphone. You know, it could be you're talking to a light bulb. But it's the most natural thing in the world to me. And I absolutely love it. Yeah. And I love talking nonsense. I'm thinking that perhaps my very first time in a studio was probably emulating you as, as a DJ hero. Well, that's very sweet of you. <laughs> it's time for a dip now into my box here for the first of five picks from 45 in this record box. All of the questions are on 45's thieves. So if you say when, I'll dip into the box. Okay, right now. Okay. Is it all in the prep? I think you're probably right. I think the preparation, I mean, just before I was talking to you, I'm putting together my shows for the weekend. I'm very lucky. I, I do a BBC local radio show that goes to six of the stations and I sit there for three hours and play music from my own collection. And I love it. I love doing that. So the preparation is very important. With Sound of the 60s, I've got a, a little team around me. Phil, the collector Swern, who's been my friend for um, over 55 years now. And um, he puts some of the 60s music together and I have the final say. So if there's a song he's put in there I don't like, I put another one in. And we work it like that. So it, it's quite good because we get two of our tastes there. But I never play a record 
that I don't like and don't believe in. That's the truth of it. So preparation, I think, is very important to a certain extent, certainly with the music. I mean, with the ad-libbing, that's different. You mentioned earlier about being known as perhaps a DJ for what you were saying. Yeah, cheesy. <laughs> but for example, soul music. Yeah. You were instrumental in bringing soul music to the UK, I think. Yes, well, I always loved. My dad loved Jackie Wilson, and we had that record, Reap Petite, and we used to play it over and over again. And I just loved black soul music, American music. Uh, in my, when I was a youngster, I, I loved Sam Cooke and all these wonderful people, and um, the Drifters, of course. Anything with a soul to it. I love Will Young, for instance. He's got a very soulful voice, and of course, Dusty Springfield. But when I went to the BBC, I did the very first soul program out on the pirate ship Radio London uh, in the early 60s. It was uh, very early on a Sunday morning, probably very few people listening. It was so early. But I loved it. I sat down there for uh, two hours and just played soul music. When I came to the BBC, I found that they weren't playing any Motown or any music like that. So when I did the breakfast show, I made sure that I put the Temptations in, Diana Ross in. And if you look at the charts, you'll find that from 67 onwards, these records did get into the charts. Because Radio 1, of course, at the time, it had a massive audience because there was no commercial radio. So to me, it was very important to introduce people like Stevie Wonder uh, because they're just wonderful artists. And for me, I'm very proud of the fact I did introduce soul music into this country. In fact, John Peel, I actually got on all right with John Peel. I think he had a slight sort of thing against me. I don't know what, quite what it was. But he once came up to me and said, you know, Tony, he said, you've done so much for soul music in this country. And I said to John, would you ever say that in public? He said, oh, no. <laughs> Funny, isn't it? <laughs> Funny. Because he did so much for um, alternative music as well. But he would not ever give me credit for um, the soul music thing. Because he, he considered me, you know, doing jokes and things like that, which was fine. And uh, in fact, nowadays, I drop the presentation of jokes. I think it is quite important to try and change your style a little bit now and then. And um, I dropped the jokes. But when I went back to doing Sound of the Sixties, the listeners kept sending jokes in. So I thought, oh, they obviously want it. So now all the jokes that I tell are all from the listeners. <laughs> back into the box for question two, Tony. Yep. Blame the listeners, eh? <laughs> <laughs> all right. What are the most important tools in a DJ's armory? Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, it's basically a love of what you're doing. If you don't love the job, then give it to somebody else because it's to have the ability to love the music you're playing, believe in it very, very strongly, then also be able to work the machinery in the studio. It's terribly important, this. And unfortunately, nowadays, we do get you know people who come in from the television side, which is fine, but they don't necessarily learn how to operate the machinery in the studio. And you can really make yourself sound very much better than you really are if you're slick. Slickness is very important. In other words, you talk up to the vocal, you don't crash it. So the technical side of it is, I think, quite important. I think it's also important as an older person to keep up to date with technology. I love technology. I mean, I've always loved Twitter. I was one of the first people on Twitter. I had uh, one of the first sat nams in the country. I had one of the first satellite dishes. I've always loved technology. I drive a, an electric car. So I think that is quite important. Some of the people I worked with earlier on, they're not interested in Twitter and iPhones and iPads and things like that. And I think that's a mistake. And also never say to anybody they don't write songs like they used to, because in every generation, there's good music and there's bad music. I think the artists of today, some of them are really fantastic. 
you know, and there were some great artists in the 60s, but a lot of rubbish came out in the 60s as well. You know, out of 100 records we used to get on board the ship, we were lucky if we could get two that were really good. And we play the best of the 60s. We've got to remember that. But there are some fantastic artists around today as well. Sorry, it was rather long, rather a long answer there. It was a very full and comprehensive answer. And I couldn't agree with you more about driving the desk and the feel that gives you. It's the difference between being the driver of a car and the backseat driver, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's a very, very good point. You know, being the driver of a car, you know what's happening. You can steer it in the right direction. And if you're not, you're relying on somebody else. And I've seen a lot of the people, they put the microphone on and then they signal to somebody to put the record on for them. There is that split second where that person has to react. If you're in a studio, it's there. And that split second means a heck of a lot on radio. I'm going to take this opportunity now to Mm. tell you, I think it's pretty obvious uh, how much of an influence you've had on my career. Oh, it's very kind of you. Thank you. But timing, you know? Yeah, You've touched on it there, the ability to just start the next song. That timing is absolutely everything to me. It is. Timing is so important, knowing the music you're playing. Of course, we have a little trade secret out now. Of course, when you hit a record and the singer starts singing, there's a mark there, so you know when they're going to start singing, which helps a lot. In the old days, we didn't have that, so now and then we crash the vocals. But, I mean, I've played the record so much. You know, I can do them practically in my sleep. Yeah. But the timing is very important. You don't want to crash a record. It sounds awful. But now and then that happens. But timing is really you know, the secret of everything, I think. It does become instinctive, though. But it's yes. an intro that's on the offbeat. <laughs> that's when I end up crashing a vocal. Yeah, that can happen. I mean, on the Golden Hour particularly, I love doing the Golden Hour because every week it's a challenge. With the Golden Hour now, I sort of talk into the records. And if I crash that, the whole joke's gone. <laughs> so um, I've developed a different style on the golden hour to the other you know, sound of the 60s. But um, yeah, timing on that show particularly is important. And while one record is playing, I'm rehearsing the other thing. So I do do a little preparation for the golden hour and I hear the introduction of the records and I just write down things I think might be quite funny. Not that they ever are, but in my <laughs> mind, I love them. <laughs> That's a lovely glimpse behind the velvet curtain. <laughs> How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. They do leave you alone, I've found, to get on with it. That's all I ask. You know, I don't want people to tell me, do it this way, do it that way. I feel sorry for them being restricted like that by people, quite often, who've never broadcast themselves. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, back into the box then for question three, Tony. You say when? Uh, Right now. Do you feel pressure? Um, Pressure, not so much as I used to. There's pressure everywhere. I mean, if I go on stage, I don't suffer from nerves, basically because I know exactly what I'm doing. I feel the pressure if I'm doing something that I might think this is something that's not me. I know my limitations. But everything I do, certainly on stage and in the studio, I'm quite confident of. But no, I don't feel the pressure. I feel the pressure, obviously, when contracts come up for renewal and things like that. 
that's a pressure because sometimes, you know, you can get people who are running a radio station and don't quite get what you're doing. And uh, so then you think, oh, well, it's probably not going to happen anymore. But I know in my heart of hearts that if my contracts aren't renewed on the stations I'm working for now, I know that there are one or two others that do want me. One or two. (laughs) Not naming any, but I know there are one or two. And I've always tried. Up until recently, I always had at least three or four radio stations I was working for. And I used to work for commercial radio and the BBC. Now I just work for the BBC because I was working for a commercial radio station in Kent. But of course, with the pandemic, they sort of more or less, well, they didn't go out of business, but they weren't advertising so much. So now I just work for the BBC. And I, I, I really love working for the BBC because they do leave you alone, I've found, or they leave me alone to get on with it. And that's all I ask. You know, I don't want people to tell me, do it this way, do it that way, because I feel in my heart of hearts that I know what I'm doing after all these years. On the subject of pressure, Tony, mm-hmm. what about day one at Radio One? What do you remember about the moments leading up to your first link? Well, we recorded, funnily enough, uh, the opening of Radio One, we recorded it for television the night before, because in those days they didn't have satellite stuff and they had to you know, rush it down to boots and get it developed and all that stuff. So we recorded it the day before with Robin Scott, who was the controller, lovely man, uh, the controller of Radio 1 and 2, and very supportive of uh, me as well. Because when I came over from the pirate ships to the BBC, they couldn't have been nicer. They said to us all, they said, look, you've been doing it for the last three years. You come in, what do you need to do it? And you show us how to do it. And that's the way it was. And uh, they were terrific. So we recorded that. And that's the only time I jotted down the word for word what I'd said on the recorded show. Then we did it live on the morning. I just thought to myself, I just want to get the first words correct. It would have been awful if I come on and said, welcome to the exciting new sound of Radio Carol, I, I, I mean Radio 1, or something like that. So I knew this would be played over and over again. So I tried to get that right. The only thing I did say that was a bit weird was, and welcome to the exciting sound. I don't know why I put the and in, but it went very well. And you know, I, I didn't, once again, didn't have any nerves. I had a slight guilt that I thought that it was a shame that here we were opening up Radio 1 and the commercial radio stations like Radio Caroline and Radio London that had given me the start, we deserted them and we went to, once again, to the monopoly. But that was the way it was. And of course, the game was over out on the North Sea when they made it illegal to advertise. So that three years was special and it was time to move on. And to move on to the BBC and open up Radio One was a dream come true. And somebody said to me, it wasn't just the opening of Radio One. For you, it was a career. And it has been, you know. Back into the box for question four, Tony. You say when? Absolutely now, I think. What's the weirdest thing to happen to you in a DJ booth or behind the mic? I think possibly going in to do the Radio 1 breakfast show and stumbling over a tramp who was sleeping in the studio. He's a lovely guy, but he was just sprawled out in the studio. Because in those days in the 60s, we didn't have uh, passes and there, there didn't seem to be quite the security that we obviously need now. So I stumbled over him and I uh, put the lights on. There he was. And I said to him, I said, uh, hello, who are you? And he, I can't remember his name, but I said, you can't stay in here. And he said, it's lovely and warm. I remember him saying that. And I said, I know it is. I said, but I said, you can't stay in here because we're just about to do a program. And so he was dushed out and that was it. That was very odd. And the other thing I remember without the security that we had, I remember going into broadcasting house and there were two guys in a white uh, overalls taking a grand piano out. And I opened up the doors for them, and they put the grand piano that they'd taken from the BBC Theatre into the van, 
And that's the last the BBC saw of the grand piano. <laughs> they stole it. <laughs> and I'd open the door for them. Um, so uh, another thing I found really weird is that when my contract was no longer renewed at Radio 1 after 17 years, I didn't know anything about it until I went in to do a program. I think I was doing an afternoon show. And uh, I signed in. A commissioner said to me, he said, oh, Tony, we are going to miss you seeing you every day. And I didn't know I'd been given the elbow. I found out from the commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do? Well, I, I was rather disappointed about it. And uh, that was it. I, I, I don't know. Somebody eventually told me. I think that was fair enough. I'd been there 17 and a half years. I desperately wanted to move on to Radio 2, actually. But the problem was that we had Doreen Davis, who was my executive producer at Radio 1, but her husband was an executive producer at Radio 2. Now, I couldn't go to him and say, you know, I think I'm knocking on a bit for Radio 1. Is there any job at Radio 2? Because if there hadn't been, he'd have obviously said to his wife, Tony doesn't want to be with you anymore. So I, I, about a year before all this happened, I really wanted to be picked up by Radio 2. But in those days, there wasn't that transition over, which there is now. It's much better now. You know, people like Zoe Ball and uh, Sarah Cox. And that's, that's a good way of doing it. Two great broadcasters. Yes. A final question for you now, Tony, then. Yep. Your fifth and final one into the box, say when. Uh, right now? How big is the box? It's a record box. Oh, I see. A proper actual record box. One of those BBC record boxes. Well, yeah, don't, yes. They're wonderful. Oh, you, you, one you nick from the, uh, yeah, well, we've all done that. Don't worry, I've got one here. Uh, Tony, uh, this last question then, which do you care more about, what you say or what you play? Oh, gosh, it's a combination of both. I couldn't answer that. The music is all important because if the music isn't right, then the programme is no good because I can't believe in it. When Brian Matthew did the show, he recorded it. And I, when I was given the show, said I would really love to do that show live. And of course, I do the Golden Hour on Friday between seven and eight. So I go home and I have about three or four hours sleep and then go back in again. But I'd rather do that and do the job properly. So for me, what you say, of course, is important. But the music is its a combination of both, to be honest with you, Chris. I'm going to have to duck out of that one. It, it goes hand in hand. Yeah, I wouldn't expect anything less, I don't think, as an answer to that. We're there, Tony. Is the future of radio bright, would you say? I hope so. I hope it's bright. I think what we pioneered on commercial radio in the 60s was personality radio. And I think, certainly with commercial radio, I'm disappointed at the fact this three in a row and a time check thing, you know, and people are not allowed, I believe, to develop their personalities on commercial radio. And I think that's a tragedy because there are so many people that could, and I, I know, I know one or two people I know work for commercial radio, I won't mention their names, but they say it's so frustrating sitting there playing three records, being allowed to speak for 15 seconds and then having to move on. Uh, luckily at the BBC, that isn't the case. And I hope it never does become the case because I think personality radio for me is what I love listening to. And I don't listen to the three in a row in a township brigade, but I, I feel sorry for them being restricted like that by people quite often who've never broadcast themselves. And it's a shame. And uh, I believe if I was running a radio station, which I would still love to do, actually, and I would allow the DJs freedom to be exactly who they are, with guidance, of course, you know, you've, uh, that's the thing. But I, I, I really do believe in personality radio, and, and I thank the BBC for continually doing that. And uh, long may it last. 
Because if it didn't actually, if I wasn't allowed to do that, I would no longer want to be a part of it. Long may you reign, Tony Blackburn. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you for, um, well, I mean, I don't know, influenced by me. That's not something I would boast about, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Tony, if it was the end of the world and you had to play the last record on earth, what would it be? Love is the answer, England Dan and John Ford Coley. Tony Blackburn, what a privilege. Thank you so much. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>